Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 60. Great guests this week. I say it every week, but I do think I get great guests every week, so, you know, sue me. Um, I'm very happy to talk about a number of different subjects this week that are near and dear to my heart and really should be, I think, front and center for anybody who considers themselves an activist uh, in the United States or in the, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the world in general these days. But I want to make my usual appeal for Counterpunch. Uh, the fun drive may be over, but the need for funds is never over. Uh, Counterpunch is always operating on a razor-thin margin, and anything that you can give is always greatly appreciated. It's one of the very, very few spaces we have online on the left to really fight out these ideological issues, to really focus on uh, original ideas, original writing, original content every single day brought to you for free without advertisements, without all of the BS that comes with many of the other uh, online outlets. And of course, the podcast, the print magazine, the online store, a lot of different things offered. Uh, if you think that these things are valuable, these sorts of spaces for uh, the left, for discourse online, do consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine or simply donating using your PayPal or uh, credit card or other payment options uh, through the website. It's very, very important in my view. Get rid of the Starbucks latte this week. Give the money as a donation to Counterpunch. And as an added bonus, it's tax deductible. So consider that. Anyway, uh, I want to turn to my guest this week. Very happy to finally speak with him. I've been a follower of his work for a long time, a big fan, lots of important stuff to discuss with Kali Akuno, uh, including what's going on down there in Mississippi, which is being, I think, ignored by a lot of people, but uh, to our own shame, because it's really, really exciting. So uh, I want us I want us to talk about that. Kali Akuno, activist, organizer with Cooperation Jackson. Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I, I kind of set it up there a little bit uh, and you know, not to overly simplify the matter, but this is something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. A lot of people who aren't following this sort of stuff closely don't know about what's going on down there in Jackson, Mississippi. Lots of exciting stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about the project and some of its origins? Mm -hmm. Well, let me try to start with a beginning. I'm not going to say the beginning, but a beginning. Um, and that is, you know, a little more than a decade ago, um, a think tank within the Malcolm X grassroots movement, uh, of which I'm a part of, uh, developed a plan called the Jackson Cush Plan, uh, which is a strategy, first and foremost, uh, about uh, taking control of, of Jackson, democratic control of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, building extensive base. Uh, throughout the state of Mississippi, uh, a multiracial base throughout the state of Mississippi. And with that, uh, kind of with uh, uh, a weak link, uh, the weakest link in the chain of, of U.S. imperialism type of strategy, using that to, to be able to take over the state of Mississippi. And that's based upon a number of kind of favorable dynamics and a long, long history of struggle uh, here in the state. Uh, and what makes us believe that it will make it somewhat uh, favorable, the state of Mississippi uh, kind of has what we call a 60-40 breakdown. And the reality is probably closer to 50-50. But the state is, according to the U.S. Census, 60% uh, white and 40% black. And the, the black community 
historically uh, has acted and voted as a pretty solid and consistent political block uh, in the state of Mississippi and a pro- fairly progressive block in the state of Mississippi. Uh, and so what we've been trying to add with this this plan uh, is more or less kind of a strategy uh, and a vision to to pull it further uh, to the left uh, and to try to create ways and means by which that black population, that black community can link up with progressive forces in the state of Mississippi, white progressive forces in the state of Mississippi, and use that to our advantage uh, to redirect, reorient uh, this state. Now, that's our long-term vision. That's our long-term strategy. And what has taken place in the context of that strategy, in the context of executing that strategy, uh, we've won uh, several elections. Uh, We've defeated uh, several of the the most kind of draconian uh, legislative measures uh, that our neo-Confederate government uh, has tried to execute here in the state or the neo-Confederate uh, forces here have tried to execute in the state. And folks should know, just to make this clear, you know, we have a Tea Party government. Our, our governor, Phil Bryant, is a Tea Party member. And our state legislature, and we have a Republican supermajority here in the state of Mississippi now, uh, it is also very much dominated by uh, the Tea Party faction of the Republican Party. And so, you know, we've been fighting them uh, in in their effort to privatize everything. If if it's totally left up to them and they can do whatever they want, uh, Mississippi would basically only have a police force uh, and and a, a small office, perhaps to collect a few taxes. But other than that, uh, they would privatize everything: uh, the water, public education, uh, parks and recs. Uh, eliminate any and all uh, labor standards, which are very weak down here anyway, and uh, eliminate all environmental protections just to give you and the audience a kind of a slice of where they're at uh, and what they openly and plainly aim to do. Uh, They are uh, vehemently and openly uh, racist. often joke that um, in Donald Trump, folks are getting a small taste of what we live with every day here in Mississippi, currently under... Uh, the reign of Phil Bryant. Uh, so we know this very well. But uh, we've we've been able to, you know, uh, like I said, you know, the thing the thing folks know us most for uh, is some of the electoral victories. And in 2009, uh, we were able to elect Chokwe Lumumba to the city council as just probably the most preeminent of, of the victories that folks know. And in 2013, uh, we were successfully able to uh, run Chokwe for mayor. He won for mayor. He held that office a little more than eight months before he uh, tragically and unexpectedly died. Uh, in the the kind of the, the wake of his passing, uh, we launched uh, Cooperation Jackson, uh, which is an organization that's focusing in on building uh, a vibrant solidarity economy. Uh, primarily through building worker cooperatives, but not just worker cooperatives. We're also working on uh, a land trust, uh, and we're also working on a very, um, I would say, uh, a critical project that we call the Sustainable Communities Initiative, which we'll get into uh, later. 
Uh, but right after that, we we launched and and uh, we've been continuing a part of the overall strategy of the Jackson Cush plan through Cooperation Jackson uh, ever since. And just so folks know, uh, and then we can kind of go deeper. Um, I just kind of gave you the long term uh, vision of what we're trying to accomplish with the Jackson Cush plan. But the the organizing strategy really calls for uh, kind of three core components of development. So the the leading force uh, is the development of people's assemblies, and and we're working uh, with them to the, to be instruments of dual power. Uh, the second component is independent political uh, uh, electoral politics, I should say, independent electoral politics. Uh, and we are doing that in a number of different ways. The primary vehicle we've been working through is the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, but also uh, the Green Party and also just independent runs. Um, and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, just so folks know, that is a, a vehicle that was created uh, primarily by SNCC, but the uh, overall organization called COFO, which is a, an alliance of uh, the civil rights organizations here in Mississippi, uh, in in the mid 1960s, uh, to do a combination of voter registration, a combination of of organizing, and as it turned out, building the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, so that uh, the black community and poor whites had an electoral vehicle of their own uh, to challenge the the white dominated primary and the white dominated Democratic Party at that time. Uh, so that vehicle still exists, uh, primarily in the Black Belt portions of uh, Mississippi and in Jackson. Uh, and we have been working through it uh, to kind of channel some of our energy in the, in the electoral field. And then the, the third component, which is where Cooperation Jackson comes in, uh, that is building a solidarity economy. And that is to be a transformative a agent towards building economic democracy uh, in the state of Mississippi, which we see uh, uh, as a transitionary uh, phase towards uh, uh, socialism, um, just to be frank. So that's that's where we're at, uh, Eric. I hope that gives the audience a, a, a fair snapshot for us to, uh, to take it even a little deeper. Absolutely. And I definitely want to get more in depth on a number of those initiatives, especially the really uh, uh, critical work of infrastructure building and capacity building uh, as far as uh, creating an independent form of power. But I have to ask you, and, and I just want to be clear, I didn't tell Callie I was going to ask this question or any questions. I didn't game plan any of this. But I have to ask, because I've been following it closely for a number of years now, when Chokwe Lumumba died, there were many people, including some of my friends at Black Agenda Report, including others, who were asking a very obvious question. And I just want to know if people are still asking this question. Is there a belief that his death was a little too convenient? I mean, you have here an independent a uh, uh, political figure who has now really made a mark in one of the most deeply reactionary states in the country, who is moving in a more radical direction than almost any other political figure anywhere. And we know the history of COINTELPRO, we know the history of the 1960s and the 1970s and what happened to the Panthers and all of those other organizations. And then we see this happening right, the, you know, just a couple of years ago. And obviously my instant reaction is, well, that 
that's a little more than coincidental as far as I'm concerned. So I don't want to necessarily ask you to tell me what you think, but people in general, are they still talking about his death and the circumstances around his death? And then the secondary question is, did his death set the movement back or was it a catalyzing moment that really drives the movement forward? Or maybe both? Well, there's plenty belief to go around that it was more than uh, convenient. Plenty of belief to go around in this community and elsewhere. Um, COINTELPRO never stopped um, in any form or fashion. You know, they at best maybe have changed the acronyms, um, put it a little deeper on, on the FBI's uh, desk. But uh, if we look at, at what has transpired since September 11th, uh, you know, COINTELPRO now looks almost amateurish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, compared to uh, what they're doing now, the amount of intelligence they're gathering on damn near everybody. Um, so we, we know it's still alive and well. Um, we know very clearly when Chokwe was alive uh that the the fbi was crawling uh, all over this place uh they stood out like sore thumbs at least you know the aspects of of it that we could monitor uh and in a community like jackson jackson it's only two hundred thousand people uh, it's 85 percent black uh i mean overwhelmingly poor so you stick out like a sore thumb uh, often, you know, if you're not from here. And it's also a place where people have lived here for generations. So folks know each other. They know each other's families. They know each other's backstories, as, so, as we say. And uh, so they stuck out like sore thumbs. So they were here. They were around at, during that time uh, making some observations. Um, the Obama administration uh, uh, was sending some of its emissaries and tentacles here in a number of different fashions. Uh, Joe Biden's little brother uh, was in town quite a quite a bit, uh, trying to uh, make some deals, um, you know, with with uh, our administration on some major uh, infrastructure projects uh, that the city has to basically uh, uh, do because we're under EPA uh, consent decree to fix the city's. Uh, water treatment facilities and water delivery systems uh, because they're old, they're antiquated, they're lead infested, they need to be fixed. Uh, but they slapped, you know, this this uh, consent degree on the city in 2012 before we were elected uh, to do that because all of the, the previous administrations going back to the to the 1980s basically just kind of kicked their can down the road. And uh, what it was amounting to was close to... Uh, a billion dollars of repairs just on fixing the water infrastructure that the city had to, to commit to and comply with. So you had a lot of you know these major uh, uh, engineering firms uh, hovering around, buzzing around, uh, like the city <laughs> was a dead carcass coming around. And his brother was one of them with this uh, 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 group called the Blue Green Group, um, uh, which is a Democratic Party, you know, um, racket basically uh on infrastructure 
So they were around, and I'm saying that not to say that they did it, but just to give folks a context of the level of movement um, on a federal and international level and a level uh, of capital movement that was taking place here in Jackson when Chokwe was alive. Um, you know, and, and uh, Chokwe was, was relatively uh, healthy. He had some uh, kidney challenges. Um, you know that he had to deal with, but fundamentally he was he was fairly healthy. Uh, I had had the opportunity to talk with Chokwe literally two hours before he was declared dead. Um, he was still trying to work. You know he uh, was expecting to to get out. Uh, you know there was no indication you know, that uh, he felt anything was majorly wrong. Uh, you know, just that he was having a, a, a bit of pain. Uh, I heard nothing in his voice talking to him that indicated that, you know, he was in that kind of reflective mode or uh, as, you know, unfortunately I've been around a, a lot of uh, death uh, in my life and there's, there's moments when, I felt that folks have been, you know, in different circumstances, very clear that they are transitioning out. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, he was nowhere there. Yeah. That's my point. He was just not there, not expecting it. So it just occurred. Now, our, our the way we've looked at it is that we have never ruled out uh, that Chokwe was assassinated. I just want to make that clear. We have never ruled that out. Um, now, we, we do not say, and this we is the broader forces of, MXG, the People's Assembly, Cooperation, Jackson, you know, and our allies. We don't say that he was because we can't prove it. Uh, but like you, you, you put it, you know, it was way too convenient. It came at a very critical time. Uh, a matter of fact, you know, just to give the audience some more background, the day uh, that he died, it was a Tuesday, which is a city council uh, day here. And we had a, a very critical city council meeting that day. Uh, it was uh, a time when we were going to roll out some very critical components of our strategy that we had been working on uh, within the, the city apparatus, you know, to develop and build some support for and a level of consensus around. And so that night, um, we were going to uh, pass our, uh, uh, was it the, the, um, planner for uh, the, the department of I'm trying to I'm forgetting the name of everything Eric um, public works yeah. our public works director we were going to confirm our public works director because basically throughout almost those entire uh, eight months we had an operating public works director uh, one of our members uh, cooperate I mean uh, well cooperation Jackson member and MHGM member uh, Willie Bell, who was serving as the interim uh, a public works director, and he was going to be confirmed uh, that night. And then there were two other major things that were on the agenda uh, that, that I was actually carrying through uh, in my position within the administration uh, as the director of, of uh, special projects and external funding. And the major piece that I was bringing forth was uh, getting the city support for the Jackson Rising Conference, which happened 
in May uh, that lost the birth of Cooperation Jackson. But but deeper than that, uh, we were getting the city to commit, and they, we had already had the votes and everything lined up for them to support the first major components of our effort to build a solidarity economy and to give it some support, uh, both legislatively and, and with some resource support from the city. And so what we were aiming for was to uh, change a lot of the procurement uh, uh, policies within the city uh, to be able to uh, support the, the emergence and development of uh, worker cooperatives. Uh, and we had got the majority to agree to that. And so we were putting forth some proposals that night to get them to consider and to start voting on it piece by piece. And the one that I was presenting that night was setting aside uh, $3 million uh, from the city's uh, uh, development department uh, to go into a fund that would be matched uh, by several um, credit unions in town. So we were going to create a $6 million fund that would specifically be used uh, to help uh, emerging cooperatives uh, kind of get off the ground, a small kind of loan fund to help people plan, uh, help people kind of start some some uh, their first purchases with equipment, uh, et cetera, right? That was a, a major piece mm -hmm. uh, that we were trying to execute. And then the other thing that I was presenting on that night was the first kind of uh, uh, aspects of our plan to do participatory budgeting in the city. And we had basically laid out a plan that uh, over the course of our first kind of two years, we were going to scale up and each year uh, progressively do more and more participatory budgeting uh, with the aim that by the, our, our third year in office, uh, we were going to try the experiment of doing the entire budget, uh, uh, the entire city budget through a participatory budgeting process. So these are the things that we were laying out that night. And the piece around the public works, why that's so important so your audience know, you know, in most cities these days, you know, the police occupy the, the largest kind of component of a city's budget. In Jackson, it's public works that occupy basically 60% of the city's budget. So that control over that position and having the right person there, someone who understood the vision, uh, someone who agreed with the vision, had the knowledge to kind of execute the vision that we were trying to uh, execute was very central, uh, both for our project, but also um, it's very central to capital flows overall within the city uh, of Jackson and within the Jackson metropolitan region, right? Uh, because most of your contracts and most of your city money flows, uh, they get administered through public works. So we were, by altering a number of things, uh, you know, we were messing with established capitals, uh, a kind of gravy train, if you would, uh, uh, and delivering it. So there was a lot of uh, anger <laughs> uh, directed at us uh, for moving in the way that we were moving by the local uh, uh, capital forces here uh, that they never... Uh, missed the opportunity to share with us and with the public mm -hmm. that they were happy and dissatisfied with. So that's just to give people a context of where we were moving on the day that Chokwe died. Well, and one of the things that struck uh, me and other people outside of Jackson, outside of Mississippi, who were following all of these issues and following the development there was really two things, right? On the one hand, 
it's what you said. It's 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 a powerful, um, well, maybe not powerful, but certainly uh, highly uh, highly respected and uh, uh, supported new administration led by radicals who were willing to do exactly what you said. So you have a part. You have one aspect of this where there are people whose um you know uh, profits and uh you know mm-hmm. revenues are threatened that's clear mm-hmm. but then there's a second component that i think is in many ways even more important than that and that is that this was the opening salvo in an attempt to quote unquote revolutionize the entire mode of production the entire right. economic system in a city that is uh you know not one of of the largest cities in America, but it's not a small town either. And so this is a large-scale project, one that could have been, and hopefully will be, a template for many other communities, many other cities to really re uh, reorganize their modes of production, the means of production, and so forth. And so I think that that da- you know the 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 so-called danger of a good example. That's something that I think was highly threatening to a lot of forces that are much bigger than say some company worried about their profit margins on a particular contract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think you hit the nail on the head, man. Um, you know, excellent summary there, but no, that's, that's the context. And the other part of your question, cause I, I don't want to miss that. And I don't want the audience to miss out on that. Uh, it was both. It was a, it was a major blow that since, Many of our forces reeling, uh, but it was also a catalyst to step other aspects of the work up. And I would be lying if I said that that uh, uh, it didn't set us back in many ways. It did. Um, uh, a good number of our forces have taken, I would say, it took two years uh, for many of our forces to really regroup, honestly, uh, and, and, and find their bearings. Um, I think in particular, uh, the People's Assembly uh, really suffered uh, with Chokwe's loss, probably more than anything. Um, You know, the peace around holding office under the present rules and circumstances, we never intended that to be anything more than eight years with Chokwe anyway. Uh, Eight months, not eight years, granted. But uh, there were always kind of plans and contingencies around you know, that being used to move certain parts of, of an agenda uh, forward uh, to reshape particularly some of the policies and, uh, and, and programs of you know, aspects of governance in, in our municipal context. Uh, so, but there was always contingencies on, you know, if, if that is blocked, there's another way to do something. Or if that is blocked, we're going to do this X, Y, and Z. But, um, you know, one of the, the great lessons I think that that we have been been trying to take to heart uh, is that the People's Assembly. You know, Chokwe number one. Let me to explain to folks, there was no for none for any of Chokwe's electoral. There were two electoral runs. We we didn't pay, you know, uh, one person uh, to be an office manager or office coordinator, a campaign director. Uh, it was all volunteer, and that volunteering was primarily coordinated by the task elements of the task force, which is the executing body of the People's Assembly, uh, they put everything they had into the, both of those uh, campaigns uh, to kind of give them direction to do the mass mobilization and voter turnout. Uh, so folks put everything they, they had into that. 
and then uh, during when Chogwe was first elected, uh, you know, we were outspent uh, by our opponent, I think by four to one. Um, you know, I think between the two elections combined, uh, to give you a sense of, you know, where we were at, uh, I think for the two elections combined, we raised and spent a little more than $120,000. Um, and our opponent in the, the, the just the mayor election alone spent, I think, close to $500,000. Um, so, you know, th this was a, a, an effort that really relied on people hitting the pavement, reaching out to folks, uh, and, and putting in countless volunteer hours, uh, outreaching to folks in the community, you know. So when Chokwe died, uh, there was one of the key lessons was is that there was too much emphasis on the on the part of the task force in particular in in being that kind of campaign infrastructure and there was a period uh i think because of how much energy had been spent there was a period during Chokwe's administration uh those nine months where the people's assembly basically was at a lull uh, i think it was kind of uh, happy that Chokwe won, obviously, uh, but kind of thinking uh, his administration would cover and deal with many of the things that the People's Assembly had been covering and had been addressing, and that it was going to be through uh, his office and, and through the executive power that he would bring in some of those different things together. And, you know, there were elements who were struggling to say, no, uh, you know, we still have to exist as an independent force. Uh, and we still have to bring pressure to bear and act as an independent political force. Um, and there was an internal struggle within the People's Assembly about that course of direction. And then when, when Chokwe died uh, and his son Antar ran, uh, it kind of immediately went went back into kind of electoral mode, uh, but still didn't regain its footing as an independent political force. That really took about a year uh, later uh, uh, 2015, I think, for it to really start acting uh, in that manner again, and it's been regrouping and rebuilding uh, uh, ever since. So there were, you know, no, without question, there were some setbacks. Um, but, you know, we had enough focus and determination to also carry on and, and, and move and try to execute some other aspects uh, of the strategy and the work. Mm -hmm. And I think the vehicle that came out of that and has been uh, uh, struggling to kind of carry on the legacy and move uh, 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 the critical part of the agenda that uh, hadn't been done before, uh, that is where Cooperation Jackson was was born. So uh, we we were birthed out of the Jackson Rising Conference, which is something uh, they got uh, initiated and launched initially uh, from my office within the city. Uh, and then once that was uh, removed, the new administration that came in, uh, initially did everything they could to kind of block it, uh, including removing the city's uh, endorsement and support of the conference. You know, we moved on anyway. We planned it out to be uh, uh, a conference that would start uh, on May 1st uh, for strategic and historic reasons. Um, and uh, we launched the, the, you know, Cooperation Jackson that first day, you know, basically May Day 2014, and we've been building ever since, you know, as a, as a key component to keep the vision alive, to build on it, to build a, the economic dimension of it, 
which we always kind of saw as the the real underpinning uh, of a strategy uh, under the the kind of the rubric of you know politics without uh, economics is symbol uh, without substance. So we are working uh, diligently to, to build the substance, and that's what we've been carrying forward. No doubt. I, I want to, um, after the break, I want to get into some of the nitty gritty about uh, some of these initiatives and what you're doing, because I think it's really fascinating. And I think it's actually quite instructive for many other communities. And it's something that I've advocated a long time and written about as well. But before we go to break, I just want to ask one final question just to kind of put a bow on this part of the uh, of the chat here. What is the so okay so all of that has taken place. I just want to know what is the relationship today. Uh, you know, at the end of 2016, you know, we're we're chatting here at the very end of October 2016. Um, what is the relationship between these grassroots efforts, Cooperation Jackson, and some of the other associated initiatives, and the uh, elected administration in Jackson today? I mean, it was one thing when it was Chukwe Lumumba, and and this was really kind of, uh, you know, getting just in its in its initial seed phase, you know, getting going. But now mm-hmm. that you're going, what is the relationship like with the city government? With the city council, uh, very, fair, fairly good. I mean, uh, I would say almost anything that uh, we really proposed to them uh, and laid out, you know, properly with strategy, plans of execution, they would basically pass. Uh, there's not much of an opposition uh, there to bear, I think, against initiatives such as ours. Um, you know, they would ask some strategic questions. Uh, there's one member who probably would try to block a number of different things, uh, but they would be easily outvoted, you know, by five of the other uh, seven that sit on, on the city council. So there it's not bad. With the mayoral administration, you know, it, it was very adversarial at first. Uh, then we we at least reached out to try to uh, do some things that were more strategic overall to the city and to to move a particular dimension of of the Jackson Cush plan forward. Uh, they were fairly receptive to that. You know, the, uh, it was a, a project that uh, had it come to pass, you know, they could have taken some major uh, uh, credit for. Uh, which they clearly understood and knew uh, we wouldn't have denied them uh, uh, that. Uh, but that the, the present administration, the Yarb administration, uh, basically has been uh, under siege for the greater part of a year now um, and really uh, got set up by a lot of the forces, uh, the capital forces that really propped it up in the first place. Um you know, his administration uh, was put there, in our view, uh, was basically put there to discredit black political rule. I don't know any other way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, Wouldn't be the first and, time. <laughs> right. And to that end, he's done a good job, unfortunately. And I say that... Uh, not that he could have, couldn't have done some things better, not that he couldn't have avoided certain controversies that he's now uh, embroiled in. Uh, he's being uh, sued uh, for sexual harassment by, I think, no less than 13 women uh, at present. Uh, so there's some things that he definitely could have avoided, um, but there are a number of different things where 
I think he began to realize how he was being played uh, and manipulated about a year ago and tried to change some course upon, I think, really becoming conscious of it uh, about a year ago. Uh, and it's basically just been strategically undermined, um, you know, by, by the forces who supported him uh, to just tank the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their objectives are to privatize the city's water system yep. uh, and to basically annex a major portion, about one-fourth of the city, uh, into a special uh, development zone that will be exclusively owned, or not, I shouldn't say owned, but exclusively controlled and administered by the governor. Uh, they came with a proposal. We narrowly defeated it earlier this year uh, in the legislative session. Uh, but they're going to be back with even worse uh, the next session. Uh, we know that there's going to be a proposal that's going to be put forth to pass, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, what they have in Michigan, the, the uh, uh, emergency manager. Yeah. The words almost escape me, but emergency manager. Um, so they're, they're, they're coming. The fight is still on, um, you know, and, and that's where we stand. So, for us, you know, we've been moving uh, on a political level, uh, not so much in opposition to the Yarborough administration, because we're very clear the major decisions are not being made by the Yarborough administration. The major decisions are being made either by the Chamber of Commerce or by Governor Phil Bryant uh, with the support of uh, some of the most reactionary elements of, of the legislative uh, uh body, you know, if you would, and their their aim and objective to basically take over and dismantle uh, Jackson. Uh, so spending a lot of time trying to, to uh, be in some contest or play with him really is kind of a waste of time from our, our vantage point. Uh, you know, he's, he's, I wouldn't say he's a minor player, but he's not the big fish. And, and rather than fighting with, you know, uh, uh, Tony, you know, around the limited range of things that he could do uh, here in the city, we've concentrated our, our energy on fighting the governor and fighting the chamber uh, and getting more, you know, directly to the to the horse's mouth and the real source of where the decisions uh, are being made. And trying to make that clear to our community mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, while we, we share different uh, political views, uh, different ideological orientations, uh, than the current uh, administration. Uh, we know that it's from having held that office. We know what the limitations are very clearly uh, and are just trying to educate our community uh, about that and, and to try to be clear with him, you know, uh, don't block this because it's actually not going to serve the city of Jackson. You know, don't think about it as, as us. Think about it as the city of Jackson. And if you block this, it, it, it wouldn't help the city of Jackson. And for the most part, uh, on the things that we've put forward, uh, we really he really hasn't uh, been a major uh, uh, obstructionist to a lot of the things that we've been trying to do right. over the course of the last year. Well, I wanna I wanna get into some of the things that uh, you guys are trying to put in place, uh, some of these initiatives, because uh, I think they are really important and uh, in many ways I think serve as a critical uh, template for many other communities around the country and around the world. So let's get into that on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with Kali Akuno. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. 
here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Kali Yakuno. Uh, let me just let me just point your attention to a couple of places that are really important resources. Number one, of course, is Cooperation Jackson, as we were discussing in the first half of the show. Uh, get online, do your research, find out about the initiatives, find out about the project. It's really uh, it's not only is it fascinating just on an intellectual and a political uh, level, but it's also actually, I think, quite motivating. It's 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 invigorating to see a community, a, a city, an important city in a state that is historically very important to social justice struggles uh, and to see what's happening there. So I, I do recommend you check that out as well. And of course, also uh, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, a very important organization, not only the reports they put out, including the landmark uh, report on police and and, and uh, vigilante murders, but also some of the other uh, very important work that they've done as well. Two very uh, critical resources that Kali is uh, a part of. But I want to return to this question of uh, sustainable communities and resilient communities. And sometimes those words are kind of interchangeable, although I guess in, in a sense they mean something different. But um, that is one of the areas that Cooperation Jackson is really focusing on that I think is quite exciting. Um, so I want to just begin this portion of the conversation by asking you, how does Cooperation Jackson define and envision what sustainable community building is, what resilient community looks like? How do you envision what that is and how does that inform the initiatives you're putting forward? Mm -hmm. Well, let me back up and, and just say that, uh, Hurricane Katrina was a game changer uh, for many of us. And it really sharpened and honed our consciousness uh, politically and programmatically uh, about our ecology, about, you know, uh, climate change in particular. Uh, folks should know that, you know, the Malcolm X grassroots movement has a, a fairly long history of being involved in the struggle against environmental racism, uh, fighting against you know toxics being dumped throughout the South, fighting against you know poor air quality, uh, fighting against you know uh, lead uh, poisoning, fighting against uh, um, you know the poor construction of uh, dumpsters and, and incinerators. Uh, power generators uh, uh, in or around or near black communities, particularly in the deep south, all of the things which can contribute to lowering the quality of life for black working class people. We've been doing that since the late 1980s, uh, even before that 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 term uh, got coined uh, in the in the early 1990s, uh, just because it was things that were impacting, you know, the the community. So that had been there. Uh, and some of us, I would include myself, um, you know, as a child, um, had a, a very deep love and respect for uh, nature, was very clear um, that, you know, uh, uh, our, the habitat of many of the, the species on the planet were being decimated. I mean, I've had that for a long time. But Katrina, I think, both for me and for the organization on a whole, 
as I said, was a major catalyst of change that we had to change our perspective and see that climate change, you know, to, to us, Katrina was a clear sign that climate change wasn't uh, uh, kind of a, a pending or a future threat, that it was already here. It was here now. It was having an impact, particularly, uh, and would have a, a devastating impact on black working class communities, most of which are still situated you know, in the Deep South, all of which are uh, uh, on the direct lines of uh, of sight for most of the major hurricane trails that hit the southern part of the United States. So that was a wake up call. The, can, the can rec- I, just, I just want to add something very quickly, mm-hmm. just to building on that point. To broaden this for listeners, we should always keep in mind that climate change is always going to be a threat for everybody, but it is a clear and present danger, particularly for black and brown people, particularly in the global south. If you look at parts of Africa that are becoming uninhabitable, you look at parts of South America that are seeing increased deforestation or the destruction of coral reefs in the South Pacific or any number of other issues, it is always going to be black and brown people who are going to be the first wave of migrant climate refugees and so forth and so while uh, what you're talking about is obviously specific to the South and the United States broadly speaking this is true around the world thank you for adding that Uh, sincerely thank you for adding that there was was a place I was going to go Uh, um, and our realization of what was you know it was kind of like a wake up (laughs) hey this is already happening B is already having an impact, and then C, the, the, the point I was going to get at, the U.S. government's response to what happened in Katrina was the biggest wake-up call, mm-hmm. you know, because it was very clear, uh, to use the current language, our lives did not matter, uh, were not worthy of being saved, uh, and then what happened afterwards you know, after the calamity that, that everybody sat there and witnessed in, in uh, New Orleans in particular, uh, there's also a story which still hasn't been told of, you know, basically how they dispersed that community to the four winds and just dropped people off and say, you know, if, if you're going to get back, that's totally on you. You know, uh, you know, we dropped you off in Alaska and, and all these far from places. And if you want to go home, uh, and you don't want your home rebuilt, that's completely on you. We're not going to give you any aid uh, uh, whatsoever. That the, the catastrophe of that part of the story and the direct intentionality of it, particularly as related to you know, how the public housing situation in New Orleans got handled, basically that was used as an opportunity to destroy uh, the public housing, yeah. uh, which was some of the best built housing in New Orleans. And I was there for three years. Uh, and and was part of many of the fights to try to save those housing and had to study the architecture and the infrastructure and the quality of it for the different arguments we had to put forth. So I can give you great detail on that and not just saying it for rhetorical affect. But, and, uh, and, uh, and, and for listeners, the same exact thing that Kali is describing in New Orleans, you saw in Far Rockaway here after Hurricane Sandy, a predominantly Hispanic and, and, and minority community, where which is now being seized as prime real estate on the water for new right. homes, new development, new projects. And I know I have people in my own family who lost everything in Far Rockaway in the same way that people in New Orleans did. These were 
primarily Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and black people who had been living out there for decades in a working class community that now in many ways is irrevocably altered if it exists at all, similarly in New Orleans and in many other places. That's right. That's right. So, um, so that shapes our consciousness and what we've been trying to figure out and work on uh, in cooperation, Jackson, is how in, in the process of developing, you know, our cooperatives in the process of developing the economy and people should be clear. Let me make this clear. We, you know, with cooperation, Jackson kind of occupies a, 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 a weird and unique space in a lot of ways. Um, and, and as it relates to the, the development of the productive forces, we occupy a very weird space. So on the one hand, um, you know, we're, we're working to create on the surface, we're working to create, you know, uh, high paying quality jobs, you know, uh, that, that are locally bound, locally based, meaning they won't run away. Some multinational corporation is not going to come in make a decision to to move them to you know uh mexico or some part of southeast asia or, or africa they're going to stay here because we own and control them right so there's that piece of it which is a minimal piece of it uh but the the the, the deeper piece of what we what we had in in uh, cooperation jackson and this is something that we kind of learned accidentally is that we are also playing uh in part uh, uh, the role that traditionally the bourgeoisie plays in actually developing the building, the productive forces in, in Mississippi, particularly the industrial uh, uh, side of the equation. So that is a role that we are playing uh, uh, as well in trying to develop the solidarity economy uh, uh, and generate a higher quality of life. Notice I didn't say wealth. and We'll talk about that hopefully in a bit uh, uh, for the community uh, here in Jackson. So, we, understanding that we, you know, coming to a consciousness that we're playing that role, we need to make sure that we do it in a way which is ecologically sound in principle. So for us, we look at, in our equation, you know, how do we uh, uh, assume responsibility as well as ownership over the process of production, the processes of consumption and distribution, but also the process of recycling and reuse. Mm -hmm. So that that fourth one is, I think, something typically a lot of our forces, is radical forces, uh, uh, have not given enough kind of concentrated energy into, and we primarily focus on how do we either uh, most directly improve the condition of the workers, or how do we seize control of the means of production, and not necessarily look at the totality of the cycle, which includes how how does this regenerate life first and foremost uh, uh, and not just, you know, have a, a, a follow a, a model of capitalist consumption, which is about uh, perpetual growth on a finite planet uh, that destroys us, but just destroys us in a manner where the spoils have been more equally distributed. Right. Uh, so it, it forced us to really look at and reshift and say, you know, for our community, looking at the larger threat, how do we begin to put in practice this whole regenerative cycle? And that has been very central to the development of cooperation, Jackson. So much so that, you know, uh, a number of different kind of opportunities that we could have easily kind of seized upon to build some worker cooperatives 
uh, we really had to stack up with our principles around uh, uh, the ecology and said that we can't do that. The, you know, it, it may uh, yield some immediate kind of uh, profit, uh, but it would take us away from what we're ultimately trying to do. It would poison the environment, you know, and poison our community. So we're going to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people have said that you guys are fools for, for turning some of these things down. And what we've been saying is, you know, only a fool would kill his child. You know, look at it in that way, because it may bring immediate wealth to us, but our children and grandchildren, you know, should conditions on the earth uh, uh, continue to allow uh, uh, us as a species to thrive in the way that we've been thriving, uh, we got to look at this differently and we have to start practicing differently. So we've been trying to live up, you know, to the practice piece and what we've really oriented with that is a, is a broad initiative that we call, you know, Herbie mentioned the Sustainable Communities Initiative. And with that, you know, there's another component of that. Our Sustainable Communities Initiative is about being able to practice that whole regenerative cycle and everything that we do. But it's also about uh, stopping gentrification and displacement. Uh, I want to make that clear because that is part of the program that is also being pushed by a number of different forces uh, uh, in Jackson is already in play. And so part of our work in establishing and, and struggling to build uh, uh, community land trusts, you know, by buying as many of the, the old and uh, vacant and abandoned homes in the city, which are there are unfortunately hundreds and thousands of them in certain parts of our neighborhood, you know, similar that you have uh, uh, like in, in a city like Detroit or Flint uh, uh, or Dayton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson has some neighborhoods which are, are on that level of uh, near that level of, of kind of devastation. So we are concentrating, particularly in a, in a community in, in, in West Jackson, uh, to be kind of a holding line uh, with our community land trust against uh, uh, further kind of capital penetration that would, would lead to gentrification and displacement, but also to do it in such a manner that we rebuild the community from the ground up, from the inside out, uh, uh, along these kind of sustainable ecological principles and working towards building uh, an eco-village, a live-worth eco-village uh, in this community as a, an example both for the rest of Jackson and hopefully uh, for the rest of the country on how we can do this differently how we can do it sustainably, and the the component that we've really just figured out how to really add on that I think is the major game changer uh, is this is this community production component. Exactly. That's uh, where that's where I want to go. That's yeah. where I want to go right now, actually, because that's something that I've I've written about a lot uh, many times before, both in the context of you know just in general, but also as as temporary and even permanent solutions in places like Greece or in places mm-hmm. like Detroit. Because one of the things that oftentimes I find infuriating about the left is an inability to uh, apply some of our theoretical uh, and ideological understandings to the world that we actually live in. So while we can <laughs> we can we can sit and you know uh, read Capital, read Marx, read Engels, read Lenin, read you know whomever, and obviously get a lot from it. I mean these are giants of our collective uh, tradition. At the same mm-hmm. time, um, without applying it to our current conditions, it doesn't seem to have nearly the meaning that it should. And I think 
think that that is often lost. And so one of the things that I find particularly exciting about Cooperation Jackson and other projects elsewhere in the world that are doing some of the sim similar things is this recognition that technology has transformed the very concept of means of production. That there we you go. A, we have a different form of means of production today than we had even 30 years ago, let alone 130 years ago. That it's not solely about, you know, uh, seizing factories and who owns factories and things like that. It's also about making individuals, making small communities into their own uh, uh, means of, you know, generating products and generating, uh, uh, well, for lack of a better word, the, the substance of everyday life, the things that people need. And so I want to ask you this question. How is the initiative in Jackson transforming this concept of cooperative or solidarity economy? How is it applying some of these cutting-edge technologies, be they 3D printers or any, any number of other things, into this broader project of community-based power and decentralized uh, uh, forms of economic production? Great question. Uh, you know, we have put a, a ton of thought into this. It, it, we, it would probably take us a whole hour to just lay out uh, kind of what we're thinking and planning and, and uh, how it's being perceived. Um, well, let me try to give you a little snapshot. So the first kind of reaction that many people in the community have uh, to the idea of it, because we don't have a fab lab yet, we're working right now as hard as we can to raise uh you know, the money to build our first one. So, you know, we're, we're working uh, to build what we call the Amari Obadeli uh, Center of Community Production. That one we hope to be our first one. And we're trying to raise $600,000 in capital, uh, uh, you know, basically by uh, January 1st to be able to purchase uh, two buildings across the street from our Lumumba uh, Center uh, in West Jackson. Uh, uh, one center would house, one building would house the fab lab, which is the 3D printing side and the digital fabrication side of the equation. And the other side would be more of a maker space that, that would be more open and used for children and just the community in general to come in, experiment, design based upon human design principles, uh, uh, products and things that they would, that we would all need and would all benefit from that we could then replicate with the technology. Uh, uh, to to some scale, so we're trying to raise six hundred thousand dollars in a very short period of time. We've been we've been at this now for about a month and a half, you know, struggling and asking and trying to recruit people uh, uh, from from you know our broad flank on the left in general uh, to give us some support uh, on this. And we think it's very clear, uh, very critical, I should say, uh, that we do this without trying to or, or without having to resort to going to various kind of corporations. We want to do this and we think it's important that we do this and that the left make a, a, a commitment to helping yeah. uh, uh, us get this started. And then we do it through people power and through donations because that is the way that we can get to the political part of this process, which is we have to democratize the technology and we have to start engaging in a struggle to do that on a broad scale now while there's still time in the game uh, uh, and there's still enough innovation that is taking place within the technologies, the uh, kind of rollout and development, 
where we can have a say so. Um, can, can I just add very quickly? I want to just I want to make one point clear. Uh, there's two forms of uh, democratization, you know, for lack of a better word, that I think are relevant here. On the one hand, it's the democratization of production itself, mm -hmm. the modes of production. That's On right. the other hand, it's also democratizing the means of replication. See, that's also key here because, you know, there are many elements that would like to keep these things as closed platforms. And one of the, one of the key struggles is about making sure that everything is open source and available mm -hmm. to everybody to replicate in their own communities because I, I don't want to put words in your mouth here but my my guess would be that your ultimate vision is not that this is about Jackson, Mississippi. This is about the entire country, the entire world and we need to be focusing on uh, laying the groundwork for many other people in far-flung disparate parts of the world to be able to replicate the kind of things that you're building in Jackson. You hit the nail on the head, Eric. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, that is where we're going. That's where we have to go. Uh, you know, we just think that we are in a position to to be an innovator uh, with the political uh, uh, and social movement forces that we have here in Jackson. Uh, we believe if we are able to to make an intervention such as this at this stage uh, uh, in, in the game of where this technology and this process is, uh, that it could be potentially transformative uh, for working communities throughout this country first and foremost. Uh, and if we are able to, to create both a process and an economy of scale, uh, we could then transition this out, I think, on a global level to do the type of productive uh, 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 exchange uh, that the left has so often dreamed about, worked about, theorized about, yep. uh, and that we would be in a position uh, with the resources that are still presently amassed here in the United States uh, to be able to help transition uh, this type of production on a major scale. And if we do this right, this type of production uh, has the ability to be a regenerative process, meaning something that can restore ecological balance because you don't have to, uh, uh, A, uh, transport food. You don't have to transport all these products uh, on these big ships and these big rigs, uh, which is where at least you know, 40 to 50% of the global emissions come from. In the, in the present world economy. So think about uh, having the ability to do instantaneous exchange, uh, uh, which, you know, you somebody creates a new product, you know, somewhere in Australia. And within a few minutes, because of the present infrastructure, you know, I could take that uh, uh, open source, you know, design yep. uh, te you know, technology and utilize it to improve something in my own community without having to, you know, have a ship go from here to there. So the ecological benefits of this, if we're done, if done right and if done democratically, uh, are, are tremendous. So it's something I think that we have to fight for. There's also the anti-capitalist, anti-corporate uh, uh, side of this that needs That's to be right. understood. Because when you when you're able to control the means of production, even on a small scale, and obviously many small scales equals the large scale. But when you when you're able to do that, you're able to then create your own alternatives to the corporate system. So just one example, because I don't want this to sound like it's all theory. I want it to be very concrete in people's minds. If you have, say, uh, your cell phone, right? You have a choice, right? Your choice is you could buy it from Apple or you could buy it from Samsung, which is really no choice at all, okay? 
if on the other hand you had the ability to say go to apple go to samsung or go to those people down the street who are fabricating their own microchips and building mm -hmm. their own cell phones mm -hmm. because they have the actual equipment to do that which do you think you're going to select and what would happen when a million other people make that same choice see this is part of what it means to undermine the current system there is no need for a walmart if you have a local alternative and That's until right. you can build that local alternative people will always go to walmart and who could blame them people need what they need it's about finding a way to pr to create to fabricate to produce and to distribute those things that people need that's what this is really about and that's why it's revolutionary thank you eric thank you uh i'm going to take some of that and play that back for for my members here <laughs> well you know just so you know that's that particular piece i think summarized it you know was a good summary it's 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 something that I've, I've i've thought a lot about i've written about i've i've studied it pretty extensively you know there are there are cutting edge technologies that most people aren't even aware of that are coming around right now that will give us the ability to transform the means of production and the mode of production and mm -hmm. the means of distributing it and the question is are we going to allow the Silicon Valley types to control and dominate this sort of technology, or are we going to democratize it, decentralize it, and put it into the hands of the people? I think that that is one of the, uh, one of the forefronts of the struggle in the 21st century. I agree. We agree. Uh, that's why we're trying to take this project up. That's why we're trying to organize it and do it in the manner that we're, we're trying to do it. You know, trying to rely on the resources of the people and to, and to get a direct investment uh, so we stay away from uh, this kind of corporate route and the compromises that come with it. You know, so we, we are trying to encourage uh, uh, everybody within earshot who, uh, whether you understand, whether you, you agree, uh, whether you just believe in, in the, the principle of self-determination for communities such as ours, uh, see it in that light, you know, uh, yeah. and support it. But I would, I, I argue that, look, you know, the, the, the scary part about this is that if we don't take this serious, if the left does not really take this serious, then I think make a major repivot and reorganization around this. Not only will the mode change, it will change in such a manner which will displace billions of people. Yep. And and we know this is not a, a, historically this capitalism and imperialism are not systems uh, that are adverse uh, to eliminating entire peoples. Uh and we know that, you know, there's some right wing eco fascist, you know, nuts out there uh, who are already putting out that uh, the, the sacrifice of, you know, nearly half of humanity is not just something uh, 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 that could happen. It's something that imperatively should happen from their point of view. Sure. Uh, and as fascism is is uh, resurfacing on a major scale, you know, in the United States. Uh, in Europe, where they're already basically fascists in, in various uh, uh, elements of government in Hungary, in, in uh, uh, Czech Republic, in Poland, uh, even in Germany, some of these forces in France. They're poised to take uh, the they're, presidency they're, in France. They're poised yep. to take the presidency in France. So we had a very critical time and a very critical junction. And I've been arguing that, you know, while this little corner of the world called Jackson, Mississippi might seem inconsequential, uh, I would argue otherwise, because it's a place where uh, we've demonstrated that that uh, you know we can 
we can uh, uh, hold power and a master force to, to do so. We're still poised to do that and still working on that now and still in the, in the prime position. I mean, re- realistically, uh, just to let your audience know, uh, I think without question, come next May, uh, Chokwe Antar Lumumba is going to be the next mayor uh, of the city of Jackson. And But the question that we've been looking at, uh, even though we we know that there's probably likely political vi- uh, 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 possibility, you know, we may find ourselves, and we're trying to avert this and put our best thinking caps to it, uh, under the present rules and circumstances, if we just did the, the, the normal, you know, uh, elements of governance, we're probably going to wind up in being in what I call a Syriza trap, uh, because our city is now... Uh, over what I think is like $20 million in debt. And that's just the surface debt. There's probably more to it than that. Uh, we haven't complied with uh, uh, almost any uh, uh, of the, the the time dictates, the timeline dictates on that EPA consent decree around our water. Uh, and we had a five-year kind of tangible uh, timeline in order to make most of those those things happen. 2017 will be their five-year mark, and we've hardly uh, done any of them. You know, so there's a there's a major threat there that's pending around the privatization of our water. Uh, you got an emergency manager bill which is being proposed. You got some uh, confused and 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 uh, uh, manipulable elements within our city right now. Uh, uh, some young folks who are calling for uh, a, a return to a city manager type government. So we're under many different types of of, of threats, but we've been looking at cooperation Jackson as the real game changer. In all this is just community production because if we are able to do it on a major level, and I'll just put out right now what we're trying to do, uh, we are trying to make Jackson within the course of the next five years, you know, not just have one center of community production, but make this a fabrication city, a fab city, you know, where we are are are, are developing, uh, uh, you know, these types of uh, production centers throughout every ward. We we have a plan at this point, you know. Uh, that we want to put put uh, two major uh, uh, of these digital fabrication centers uh, in every single ward. So there will be a total of 14. We want to make sure that they are in every high school and every uh, middle school uh, uh, within the course of that time within in uh, within the city and broaden this out. You know, so as you said, eventually people can just walk down the street or walk to a neighborhood community center or walk to you know one of their neighbors and say, hey, you know. I like this. Can you make that? Or I've, I've developed this and make that. Yeah. It totally changes the quality of life. It totally eliminates uh, uh, us uh, falling into some of the old uh, uh, cycles of production, which require uh, uh, us to admit to the, to the exploitation of our labor if we do this right, if we do it uh, uh, democratically. And if the movement itself takes some ownership and onus to push this and put it under democratic control, we can radically transform our future. And so that is what we're trying to do, uh, you know, with our uh, community production initiative. This is just the first uh, uh, step of it, but we we have a long-term plan uh, and a long-range vision on on making this, as we say, ubiquitous throughout our community in such a way uh, that we can produce most of what the community needs in a non-exploitative manner and in the manner which is going to improve the overall quality of life of every individual within the city. And we make a distinction between uh, adding wealth, as we traditionally understand it, you know, and getting out of this conversation about uh, just equity, because there's, there's a lot more 
uh, to liberation than just having equity. As a matter of fact, a lot of that just gets you right back into uh, a circular argument around uh, uh, reinforcing in, 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 uh, of capitalism. So we're trying to break out of that mode, and we, we hope you know uh, listeners in your audience will help us in whatever way that you can. One of the other things, and I know we're running out of time here, but I just want to make this point as well. One of the other things that needs to be understood is that that the technology is evolving very, very quickly. And we need to ask ourselves, is our conception of our social and economic institutions equally evolving along with the technology? Because I think that that is part of what Cooperation Jackson is really about, what this initiative is about, and what you know people around the world in various places, whether makerspaces or fab labs or what have you, they're also thinking about how do we transform our institutions, economic right. institutions, to follow along with the technology? Because very, very soon, we're going to be able to fabricate our own microchips. We're going to be able to fabricate our own surgical equipment, our own uh, nanoscale technologies even, that's coming and that's coming actually relatively soon. And so again, we're, we're, we're back to the question, is that technology going to be monopolized by Microsoft and Apple and Samsung and whomever else, or is it going to be in the hands of regular people? This is one of the main uh, struggles that we have to be thinking about. And I think it's, 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 Initiatives like what you're seeing in Jackson, Mississippi, that are really, I think, opening the conversation more broadly, because if you can do it, let's just take one example. You have Flint, Michigan, right? You have a you have a completely devastated water system and somebody desperately needs to fix it, but nobody seems to be willing to. But what if the community itself could do it? What if the community could fabricate its own and, and manufacture its own tools that it would require, its own parts that it would require, even if they had to import some people with expertise on large-scale infrastructure projects, so be it. You could still control it within the community and this fight over this control over projects like that that's one of the main struggles that we have today and it's one that we're going to have to get ahead of yep. you know it's exactly. one that we're going to have to get ahead of that's what we're trying to do here in jackson i mean to answer your question you know uh, are, are the rest of the the structures of society uh falling in line absolutely not yep uh but uh we have the opportunity here to at least tinker experiment and struggle for a different way and we hope folks support us in, in making that happen no doubt about it now tell people so okay you're you're, you're saying you're looking to raise six hundred thousand dollars is this an ongoing campaign where should people go to find out more information about it about how they can help whether it's contributing financially or in other ways uh what are some resources people need to know well it's an ongoing uh campaign uh we are trying to uh, get everything in and done by raising this so we can purchase the building, we can purchase the equipment and get rolling uh, at the end of uh, January. And the, the January deadline, uh, what we're trying to do, just so folks are, uh, know and clear the imperative, uh, we already have uh, three uh, interns who are working with uh, Insight Focus up in Detroit, uh, which is a fab lab, which is based there. Uh, they are there taking the first kind of round of getting trained, getting situated to bring this knowledge and expertise back to Jackson. Uh, and they're going to enroll uh, in a fab academy along with some other members of our community and, and members of our organization uh, in that academy uh, to become uh, certified, you know, uh, fab lab uh, uh, technicians uh, by, by June of next year. 
and we're looking to start launching uh, uh, experimental projects in, in, in small-scale production uh, by next summer uh, to really start innovating and demonstrate what this technology can do. Uh, so it's imperative that we we get this off the ground in the time frame that we're hoping uh, uh, to get it done with by January 1st and hoping that folks can help us out. And folks can donate directly on our site. You can go to cooperationjackson.org uh, and you can go to our uh, uh, support us uh, section of the page and there's a donate page. There's a donate button that you can click on. That's the quickest and most direct route. If you want to learn more specifically about our community production initiative, uh, go to cooperationjackson.org backslash the uh, dash community dash production dash initiative. Uh, and that'll take you to a, a write up of uh, what we're trying to accomplish uh, and how you can support uh, both with uh, resources uh, and other materials. Uh, the the thing we need most is just, you know, donations of cash, um, uh, primarily just so folks know. Uh, to this point, uh, we've raised close to $100,000 in the process starting about a month ago. Uh, so we still have a ways uh, to go. Uh, one of the major things that we're going to be doing, uh, we have a, a community investment day set up here in Jackson uh, for the 19th of uh, November. Uh, we're go where we're going to try and uh, uh, start a process of building uh, the membership because we're building this as a multi-stakeholder cooperative. Uh, and we're first trying to start uh, by, by organizing 200 members of our community, buying $1,000 shares, which brings us to $200,000 just drawn in from Jackson. We know that's a possible uh, uh, endeavor, and so we're going to take on that. And we're hoping that folks uh, in earshot of, of this and, and uh our other appeals, which you're doing on social media, you can find a lot of this information on our Facebook page, which is just Cooperation Jackson directly. Uh, you can find it there and find our appeals and, and, and see a consistent amount of information on why we're doing this, uh, what we're trying to change, and why it's important to donate, and hopefully folks will. You can find that information uh, uh, there. Uh, and just stay in contact with us. If you have some more deeper uh, uh, questions or inquiries, you can reach us at Cooperation Jackson at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to reach us by email. Uh, and we'll go from there and, and uh, hopefully folks listen and understand the importance and imperative of what we're trying to do. Uh, uh, I think how we're best positioned uh, within the social movement to kind of make this a transformative process right now and give us some support to do that and help us uh, uh, create the dynamics and the systems that we can replicate it in New York and Atlanta and Chicago and Detroit and, and, and elsewhere. Absolutely. A very, very important initiative. And um, I will try to link to that in the show notes as well so that people can click on that if they find this on the uh, Counterpunch website as well. Well, um, I want to thank you again for coming on the program, Kali Akuno, uh, with Cooperation Jackson and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. Do consider uh, donating to their very important campaign and uh, getting involved uh, however you can, whether it's uh, getting involved with Cooperation Jackson itself or getting involved in your own community and really working towards starting these kind of initiatives wherever you may be. I think it's really critical that we all evaluate the potential for starting something like this wherever we may be. So, Kali uh, Akuno, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Listeners, thank you as always, and I will speak to you again next week. <laughs>